Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Steve Peak. Hey, Charles. Thanks for having me on the show today. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You want to introduce yourself real quick for those yeah, who don't know who you are? Thank you. Yeah, so I've been an entrepreneur and a developer for about a decade, or just over a decade. I've been spending a lot of my time building a lot of tools. I never really saw the light of day, but I finally one did. So I built the company uh, CodeCov. Many of you are familiar with it. It's actually one of the top performers in the GitHub ecosystem. And I'm very proud of that accomplishment. And so now I'm, I'm moving on to my next big project, which is StoryScript. And so what we're building over here is the, is the first and only top-level programming language that focuses on business logic and is fully a polyglot development framework. So we're going to go into a lot of details about that, but I'm really proud and happy to be, be like elevating the industry and looking for the future of the programming language. Yeah, and StoryScript looks really interesting to me um, just from the standpoint of the ability to deploy a microservice somewhere you know, that I may not have even written and then you know, yeah. go connect to it and, and do some work with it. But before we get there, I really want to back up and talk about microservices in Ruby. Specifically, like what makes a good microservice? How do you... How do you define what goes into that? And it seems like people argue too over the, the merits of, of microservices. And maybe we can get into that. But initially just, yeah, I mean, what's the, what, what is a microservice when we're talking about this? You yeah, know, I think you have some great questions. Yeah. I think the first thing that's really important to identify is that is this concept of the silver bullet and, and is it good for everybody? And honestly, no, right? Like where it is today, the answer is no. So like microservices are terribly difficult, right? And the, the reason really is, is, is transparency of data flow. So in a monolith, we have this beautiful way in Ruby and Rails, we have this beautiful way of understanding we can import gems and just call them. And we have your logic right there in one file. Maybe it's two files, three, but it's in one repository. And that's a monolith. We are, we're all familiar with this concept, right? But when you throw that out the window and go with microservices, you lose that transparency and that story of data. And that's what, that's what causes all the development pains for these, these companies that are moving to this microservice architectures is there's no cohesiveness and there's also no standardizations. And I know I'm talking in like a very general and like very global sense, but I can show you why. I can, I can, I can back this up with real ways that the industry is changing and, and adapting to this new microservice and serverless strategies that are being deployed. Right? Uh, and so Ruby is no exception to this too. It needs to keep up with the trends of technology, but not fall behind. And it doesn't need to be either. But I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to be very excited to go into depth about how uh, microservices can be built as well, too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just from the standpoint of, I mean, I've done things with serverless, for example, and, and I think that's a form of microservices, but you see things on AWS and in other areas where it's like, oh, I can set up an HTTP endpoint or, oh, I can use some other you know, API system that isn't HTTP, it's something else, some other way of hitting it. 
you know, and so they have like six different ways you can hit that little function that does a little thing. And yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, but you know, what's, what's the best way and how do I manage security on that? And it, it gets real messy real quick. A lot of those things are the complexities around development. And what, what really matters is that business logic, right? It's like using that service, that function is why that's what you, that's what you care most about, right? How you get there, it, it's part of the journey, but it's something that we're slowly abstracting away. Not me, not we, as an industry, right? We no longer do some of our primitive ways with, with, with machine level code, right? So we've abstracted very far and that's going to continue going, right? So microservices are no exception to that rule. It's, it's proving that out, right? And so and in Ruby microservices, right? Like, first of all, let's take a big step back and look at what microservices really are, right? They're just services, mm-hmm. right? A microservice, in fact, is a database, right? Like if you want to connect to a database and send an uh, insert query or select query, that's a service, microservice, right? If I want to compress a video, if I want to send a Twilio message, if my doorbell rings and that's an event, that's a microservice. An IoT streaming device, like a cron job, if you think about one sentence of a business logic, a structure, right? It's typically a microservice or a service in general, right? In a microservice, it, it just throwing the word micro in front of it, it is more or less, it more or less is a, it's just a, it's just a name, right? It's just a name saying, well, this is a, a containerized or compartmentalized process, right? And typically microservices are a domain scoped with many actions or events, right? Unlike a function, which is typically one action. And so, you have this really beautiful like service scoped microservice, right? So Slack as an API, like just, just, just the company Slack should be a microservice. And that's what I have on my screen here. I'm assuming that we're, we're showing screens, right? We are not, we are not sharing oh, okay. with our listeners. So, okay, no problem. So um, Slack, like there's a Ruby gem for Slack, right? So you import this gem that, that, that's basically a microservice, right? Like you, you, you created, you, you grabbed this gem and now you're utilizing it like a little microservice, right? Mm-hmm. And so now like, like you're starting to see, I, I hope you're starting to see like the kind of like the things that, that come out of that. You know, my main issue with microservices isn't the actual technology or the methodology. It's actually what you said, Steve. It, it, it's the standardization that there is none. And so you have companies out there right now who are building out microservices that are not reusable. It's heavily tied to their monolith or to their right. specific use case. And then now you've just added complexity to the architecture because now everything is in its own little place and now you've lost some visibility. But then they take it a step further and these microservices, to me, should do one thing or accomplish one idea, like a Slack bot or something, you know, sending out Slack messages or listening on Slack events, something like that, just something very small and subset. But what I'm seeing is that these microservices that companies have adopted are now becoming their own monoliths. And I think that's where we are having a problem is that there was no standardization. There was no training. There was no blog articles saying like, hey, here is what a microservice is. Here's how you should connect them. Here's how big they should be or the limited scope. And you should follow a sense of single responsibility with the microservice and not have it to be a dumping ground for all of your other business logic. I cannot agree more, Dave. I mean, everything you said there is the reason why I'm here talking to you. 
I, I could not agree more. And, and so to highlight your points that you talked about, you said there's no standardizations, there's lack of visibility, there's an issue with domain scope, right? And, and what you're seeing is these things turning into the monolith, monolith microservices, which is horrible. This is all true. Right. And, and my experience in the industry as well, building, building CodeCov and talking to enterprise customers, that, that everything you said is also valid. Right. The reason why there's no standardizations is, is because, like, in general, like, development hasn't shifted toward this microservice architecture because, because 90% of people are still building monoliths because that data transparency is very visible. So there's two major issues here that, that, that we can solve. In fact, we're solving with StoryScript. So for your listeners, please navigate to microservice.guide. In, your, in, in Chrome or whatever uh, you use, right? And what you'll find here is the first and only standardizations around microservices. The idea is that you create a scoped microservice without opinions, right? So a developer can say, I'm going to choose this language and I'm going to choose this interface, right? So it might be HTTP server, it might be an RPC server, and that's okay. But what a microservice is, is something that yields data. So it's an event-driven service, right? or it's something that you, you send data to and you get a response back, or maybe no response back, that's okay. But it's like a pull or push service, right? That's generally what services are, and that's, what they're, that's what's beautiful, right? And so, and what, like you said, Dave, like businesses are designing these services to fit their architecture, right? That's silly. We need to, we need to move past that, that concept. We need to make the architecture respect the way that the microservice operates in order to reuse them. It's the same way that a Ruby gem works where Ruby gems respect the way Ruby works. And that's why I can't just import a Python model in Ruby because, well, the Python models don't respect the way Ruby works, right? We all know this. This is just engineering 101. But in a microservice architecture, it's different. The execution environment is the cloud and is a runtime. It's Kubernetes. Maybe it's something on top of it like StoryScript, which understands how to communicate with microservices, how to communicate with libraries. And this, this, this contract of communication is the open microservice guide that we present to you, which is at microservice.guide. And this, and this comes with, we haven't revealed this app yet, but we have a full entire user interface for helping you create microservices. It guides you through the process. It exposes your metrics, your logs, your inputs, your output. It creates auto-generated forms for you, auto-generated documentation for you. So look, all, all, we're, all we're hoping people to do here is to be like, look, like I'm creating a microservice, which is a domain-specific utility that has many actions and or events, and I'm going to document it. I'm going to tell you how, I talk to, how you talk to me, how you start me, how you stop me. And so if we do this, we can have highly reusable components of software. Essentially, a microservice library, which doesn't exist today at all. Well, it does, actually, at hub.storyscript.io, where we're building this today. Our framework is, is, is the runtime for the cloud. It's the runtime for microservices. It uses microservices libraries. And we have to be able to communicate with all the different strategies that businesses use. And we've, and we've been able to accomplish that. And I think that there really can be an adoption that the tech sector really needs. Because another main issue I see with microservices is that people have trouble scoping out the domain logic to be completely isolated. So now you have a small microservice and it does one idea and it does that idea very well, but then it also relies on these other 30 microservices in order to accomplish right. that idea. So now they've just kind of taken their monolith and literally taken a butcher knife and just hacked the crap out of it to where you still need all these pieces in order for that one idea to function. And so 
you know, on a production environment, like you said, it's not that big of a deal. You just run Kubernetes, you yeah. deploy your application, you have something on top of it, like story script to kind of explain all the interconnectivities. But then what about the poor developers in all of this? You know, because now yeah. they're still stuck with, okay, now they're not dealing with a monolith. They have a hundred microservices on the small application that they have to deal with and have them all running concurrently in order to even test out their code or develop. Sure. Great questions, right? I mean, there's a lot of challenges here, but there's also a lot of solutions, right? Because we have to think differently, right? This is a whole new type of development, right? In this microservice distributed architecture. So let's address each kind of your point that you talked about, right? So the first thing you mentioned was scoping the domain logic. And look, we already do this. Like, in fact, in fact, there's a lot of examples of this, right? So Stripe, API. You can go to the documentation online right now. That's a beautiful scope of a microservice, okay? And so the microservice should be respecting that scope of Stripe, right? In fact, I would even go one step further. Stripe should own that microservice. They should maintain that service, right? And now when I need to utilize Stripe or fill in the blank of every other company that exists, then I can utilize their API, their services, their functions, their events, in a common and consistent way and deploy that inside of my architecture. Now, the microservices could in fact be proxies, right? They don't need to change the data yielding. So that brings me to the next point. So when you're talking about connecting, like you're essentially saying container coupling, where you're saying, well, maybe this, like, this business logic has five microservices and they're highly coupled because they rely on each other's data structures and all this kind of stuff. Let's take a step back again, right? Like microservices, they should be opinionated. They should say, you know what, I, I decide to output XML, while the other one says, I decide to ingest JSON. That should be okay. It should be the runtime's responsibility to respect those decisions, right? There is not one engineer on this planet, that I found at least, that will sit there and be like, I agree, we should change every service to JSON, every service to Ruby, every service, right? No, it doesn't exist, right? Like, let's accept that, that developers are opinionated and actually for good reason because there's, there's, there's use cases for every language, there's use cases for every serialization. So let's respect all those use cases. And so now when you focus on the domain, like I said, the business, and you also can go to GitHub. If I go to GitHub and search video compression, I get dozens of libraries. Image Magic is a great one for doing image manipulation. If I wanna look at uh, natural language processing, how about machine learning? In fact, there's a company called Machine Box they're one of my favorite companies uh, around, and they put machine learning in a Docker container. And we've effectively been able to wrap their service. Actually, I shouldn't say wrap because it sounds like a Docker container. They've already put my machine learning in a Docker container, and with the microservice guide, all it does is define how to talk to that machine learning model. And now I can call it one-line code. It's fantastic. I can add it to my infrastructure in one line. Beautiful. If you look at your Ruby uh, on Rails application, and you're like, oh, I really want to use machine box services, you just can't import their gem. They don't have one. You just can't import their services. This is not how it works, right? So you're forced to move to a pseudo microservice architecture, which like, good luck if you're on Heroku or other platforms that don't kind of support this microservice architecture, right? So you're forced to go into Kubernetes and like, uh-oh, like now you're, now you're going to the deep end of configuration, right? Even the most simple apps in Kubernetes are minimum like two or 3,000 lines of configuration. And so now when you're looking at, at the, your applications here, right? Your, app, your business as well could even be looked upon as a microservice, which is fine. So like I said earlier, I built the company CodeCov. CodeCov is a microservice. I can call it by saying CodeCov process this file and get this output. Beautiful. CodeCov merge these files, get an output. Beautiful. 
You know, CodeCov posts this comment, CodeCov do this, right? And that's the same, same kind of thing. And now CodeCov is, is a compilation of many other microservices downstream providers. And that's, what, that's where the industry needs to head in a general direction. And it's heading that way with or without my assistance, but I think that we do we, in our team's assistance. And, and I really believe that, that we're able to, to, to pull this off. This is all kind of dependent on the fact that you're truly using a microservice in the way it's meant to be, not like a microservice app, for instance. The way I see this guide, it seems to be mainly suited for like, okay, I have like Stripe, Stripe as a service, or I have like some service that manipulates my images or videos and things like that. I feel like we all talk about microservice and we think like, oh, that's what I want. But in practice and often in the wild, these microservices tend to be almost like their own app. So is this guide kind of suited for that kind of situation or is it specifically suited for, okay, I have this small service that does this one thing and it responds back? Well, let me, maybe let's use a more concrete example because I think what you said was a little bit abstract. And so let's do this. I'm going to tell you a story of a business, like a business logic, right? It's a story of data, right? So I have an HTTP server and I want to upload to it a video. I want to take that video and I want to process it with the machine learning to get the topics. I want to put those topics in a Postgres database. And then I want to take that video, I want to compress it and I put in cloud storage, right? So now what I just said right there is there any aspects of that that you don't think are worthy or capable in a microservice, right? In fact, they all are, right? So what I listed there was one, two, three, four, five microservices. So I have an HTTP endpoint microservice. I have a machine learning model microservice. I have Postgres as a microservice. I have a video compression. And then I have AWS S3. And so I strung together these services, five different microservices, five different programming languages, five different protocols in six lines of code. And I'm able to deploy it in one. That's using StoryScript framework, right? And one, one thing I really want your, your viewers to understand definitely at this point is that these microservices are not coupled to StoryScript at all. Hence being the microservice guide, the open microservice guide, right? These are platform agnostic microservices. You can build your own runtime that respects the contract. And all this contract is, is just saying, like, the runtime should be responsible for the communication, not the microservice. That allows us to use anything anywhere. So the, like, if you write your own runtime, then you have to use RPC and, and HTTP. And, and you have to be able to understand when events happen and when actions happen. That's the fundamental of a microservice architecture. That's what an orchestrator really is at the end of the day. That Kafka is an event-based orchestrator. And Kong is an API gateway, which is more or less like an action-based kind of thing. So these are just examples, right? But like, I truly believe that everything can be broken down. Like Business logic in general can be broken down into, into microservices. And anything can get in a Docker container. I haven't seen a use case yet that's something that's like, well, that just doesn't put in a Docker container. In fact, if the software doesn't need to be in a Docker container, then let's just make it HTTP call. Actually, let's make an open API spec and then also include that in our framework, which we have. So our, our framework works with serverless microservices, open API, and a new uh, async API, which is for event-driven services, which are assuming the server already exists, right? Yeah, I guess that's like the ideal. I guess what I was trying to say earlier is that I personally have not really found that to be true outside of maybe our hopes and dreams of what microservices <laughs> would be. Well, this was like an HTTP example, which is maybe a little bit too basic. Like, let's think about something more advanced, right? Like, I mean, streaming is pretty simple, right? Like us, like Twitter, like a Twitter streaming or Slack bot. We can all understand Slack as a microservice and it yields messages and you respond to them. Good. Okay, cool. 
let's think about something else. Like what about WebSockets? Um, WebSockets could also be a microservice, right? Like people connect to the service and it yields connection events and message events, right? What about Cron? Like can Cron be a microservice, right? Yeah, I believe so, right? So scheduling and, and events happening, right? And in fact, like if you like take a holistic view of software in general, there's only so many ways you can initialize software. It's an HTTP connection, a cron job, a WebSocket. It's some type of ambiguous event, maybe IoT or something. Like there's only so many ways you can just like initialize technology to to wield it like magic. And I, I truly believe that you could put those all in microservices. But as an industry, as a developer, like if you have a business idea in the first place or your manager says, hey, we would like this to be built, right? Like the first thing you do is just break it down to business logic. And be like, okay, these are the, this is like the, this is the steps I need to get from A to Z. And all those, all those letters in between A to, Z, A to Z probably are microservices when you write them down. I don't know if you literally write them down, but in your head, you know, you probably have a list of services. And, but then we automatically default to, okay, I'm going to go search for gems to fill in these blanks. This is fine, totally cool, right? But it's the same. It's the same principle. It's just instead of searching for gems, it's search for microservices and connect them all together. That's what I believe the future of programming will be. And and a lib- it's still consistent with the concepts of it's coding. There's libraries and there's a runtime. But in our case, right, the coding is still coding. It's, it's business logic. The library is still library. It's microservices. The runtime is still runtime, but it's cloud native. So our resources are different than CPU and RAM. We have nodes and ingress routes, and we have storage, right? Different different concepts with the same overarching theme of just move data. So at what point does an application become so large that you have too many microservices to even be maintainable? So, you know, how many microservices is too much to get to the center of your application, if you will? And then at what point is a microservice no longer a microservice, but a monolith microservice? Mm-hmm. So the, both of these answers, I think, are a little opinion-based, right? So I'm happy to provide my opinion for this. And yeah, so I, yeah, wanna, I want to just make sure that my answers are not put upon as facts. <laughs> but for my, my opinion on this matter, your, your first question is, um, like, uh, when is, like, how many, there's too many microservices. Like, when is there too many? And then the second one was, um, you know, when, when does the microservice become monolith? So when you're at too many, like, I honestly don't believe there is too many. And the reason is, it's actually the question to be rephrased is, when do I lose visibility? Because as long as you maintain control and visibility, we shouldn't put a restriction on N microservices, right? And as some future number, some wild thing that's, that's not real, right? Like a real restriction may be like, you know, a UTC timestamp or something, right? Like something more tangible, right? Like a bit, a bit length. But like number of microservices is not a real number. So it should be based on the control and visibility. And now I would argue that storage scripts and maybe other languages that emerge in this category of, of orchestration languages is that they, they're focusing on that readability and that transparency of data flow. And so understanding what microservices are being used is much like how many gems you have. Like, is there a limit to the number of gems you can... In, I don't think so. I know it's not for Python. Like, I'm sure you can install or, or import thousands of Python packages, but no one needs to, right? So like typical frameworks uh, for microservices could be hundreds of thousands. And so... And now it's kind of getting into the other question, right? Where it's like, like, when is it actually really too much? And, and yeah, like, if your microservices are too specialized, then you're going to have more of them naturally, right? And then and, and that's the fault of the company in the design practice. Because they're not looking at microservices as being domain-spaced. They're looking at them as being action-spaced. In fact, these, these microservices should actually be more functions than they should be services, right? I believe, and, and more generally speaking, microservices are a domain with many functions. 
And so you look at your, uh, you know, when does a mon when does a microservice architecture or this kind of thing become like a micro monolith, right? And and that happens when you create multiple microservices in the same domain scope. That becomes a problem because then then you're you're getting this weird position of like, do I call version like, do I call Slack underscore one and Slack underscore two? Like like that's silly. Like no, Slack's just Slack. Slack Slack is the full API. Why should I have different versions of it, right? And 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 then they become too specialized. There's a balance, right? So when you as a business are designing a microservice architecture, which by the way I don't recommend, and I also think that it's only really for like big big companies to understand what they're doing, that they need to respect the domain space. And, and scope it properly. So this microservice, if you need to add a new feature into your, your overall architecture, then you need to first look at being like, well, is there already existing microservice that's properly scoped for this new action? This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues, that's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So let's take an example like WordPress, where you have users can sign up, you have users that can create blog posts and users that can write comments on the blog post. So, you know, that can be broken out to X number of microservices. And let's say you wrote it in Ruby. So typically, that would be just a couple of scaffolds with device on top in a monolith Rails application. You push that to production as a monolith, and now you're running about 200 megabytes of memory usage. But if you broke this out into microservices using Ruby, then maybe you have 30 microservices that are performing each kind of function or action. And then you're going to have a load, initial load, memory load, for each microservice of maybe 100 megabytes for each Ruby microservice. So are we inflating our production environment or our infrastructure with unneeded memory by using microservices? Yeah, it's we're talking question. about using yeah. three gigs of memory. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Dave. I mean, like that, that is a concern. Here, so I'm not trying to negate that that question, which is a really, really valid yeah. and a concerning concept. But I would actually look at this a little bit differently, right? The more scarce resource is not memory, it's productivity. It's developers' time. These resources that you mentioned are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And they're mm -hmm. getting easier and easier and easier to, to utilize. And the software itself is, is not necessarily being bloated, bloated, bloated. Now, your architecture may, yeah, of course, a microservice architecture may, in fact, you re, it, it definitely will, I would probably say, like, would utilize more memory and more CPU. That's fine. You know what? That's fine. Because if I am able to deploy my features 10, maybe 50 times faster, then as a business perspective, that's absolutely worth it. No question about it. And if I'm also able to have polyglot development where I can say, hey, engineers, like, I don't care what language you use as long as you understand theory, let's go. And if I have high visibility in my data structure, 
like that's valuable. In fact, like if you're if you're an engineering company and you're so focused on memory footprint, you're probably going to be losing. You're probably not going to be in business much longer. What you need to be focusing on the demands from your customers and your demands of the customers, they don't care at all about your memory footprint, right? They care about, I want my data. I want it now. I want new features, right? That's the stuff you need to push. That's the stuff you need to focus on. And what better than to have a transparent programming language to focus on the business logic and push new features. And not to get too in-depth about what we're doing at StoryScript, but having the ability to do A-B testing and auto-scaling and, res- and, and failover, all of these things have immense value compared to just checking the size. Now, but just to kind of go back though, like microservices though, they, they, they can be optimized and you can also put around, um, you can do profiling and other things around to, to optimize the memory usage, right? There's actually a really good uh, blog post that I've the name escapes me of, of the guy who, uh, who wrote this, but he was able to optimize uh, Ruby's memory by like, I think a third. He was like cutting down, cutting down two thirds of the memory usage from, from Rails just by this like cool thing that he did in like lower level. So like these things are happening still, right? Um, but I think the focus should be more on productivity. I think that was uh, Hung Lee. Yeah, that's right, Hung Lee, yeah. Yeah, he's here in Amsterdam with me. I'm just like, for some reason, forgot his name for a moment. But yeah, Hung Lee, he's great. And that was his post blog post, yeah. Yep. So you're saying that the production side, don't worry about that. Let the business worry about that. It's going to pay it off because we're able to ship out more features faster using this methodology. So if we are, de- and you know, let me uh, preface this with, I don't think any developer's use case is unique. I think that anything that we are trying to do, people have already done or they're doing. So I don't want to say that my application is a special little snowflake because I think everything's already kind of been done before in this scope. But at what point do we build a complicated application in microservices that each microservice kind of relies on each other or you have a group of them that relies on each other and then you're trying to do development and testing on one single microservice, but you need these other ones up and running. So, so really- this is just a bad design practice, to be honest. Yeah, so like when you're looking at microservice architecture, these are the pitfalls that people get into when they don't have the proper constraints. Some of the wisest people that I've learned from have a more consistent quote. It's that people thrive, creativity thrives with the right constraints. This is no exception for software, in fact. If I give you complete flexibility and control, it's gonna get chaos. The right application, the right framework, the right, the right platform, the right SaaS tool is intentionally restrictive to make you more productive. And, and that doesn't reduce flexibility. It keeps you focused. And when you said everything is already done, like I, I agree. I mean, there's, of course, there's edges, but like, let's, let's just agree that generally speaking, everything is already done. Then what better than to have microservice architecture, right? Where I can use specialized microservices and reuse them. This is the one thing in the industry that as of today still does not exist. And StoryScript is the only company doing this where we have reusable microservices. Isn't that a thing? That sounds crazy, right? It's like, no, I can't share microservices across business. That's crazy. No, you can do that today. And it's like my Slack microservice is the same microservice as your Slack. Like what a wild idea, right? And that's going to make the industry more effective, more inclusive. It's going to make us more focused, right? And imagine if that Slack, that Slack microservice written in Ruby had an error. Then what better than the runtime that has maybe 10, maybe 1,000, maybe a million customers using that Slack microservice? What better than the runtime provide feedback directly to GitHub of that error report? How fantastic would that be, right? And, and how about you have cross-application anonymous metrics? 
showing you exactly how many people are using your service, what actions are the most popularly run service, this might actually help promote healthier software. It might actually promote uh, better open source contributions. It might help you prioritize your issues because you actually know who's using them. You actually know the data behind what's causing those issues, right? Like this is the future of development. So how does someone go from poor decisions? You know, because let's face it, (laughs) we as developers... Managers at companies are riddled with poor decisions. I'm guilty of this. You know, I've made some really stupid decisions in the past. But how does someone go from a poorly architected microservice environment where they have 100 microservices that are so tightly coupled with one another that you have to have the entire stack running in order to just write a single line of code? How does someone go from that to separated responsibility microservices that are performing in their own entities? You know what, Dave? I, I think that's like my favorite question anybody's asked me. Is it, honestly, like, because I think I have a really good answer for it. Okay, the problem is this. Without a language or tool like StoryScript, you're forced to put your business logic somewhere else. And, and that business logic may in fact be in the microservices, which is terrible. That couples them, right? That that causes the chaos that you just described is when your business logic lives inside the service of that domain. Your business, it has no business in that microservice, right? <laughs> and and that's the truth of it, right? So we need to take a step back. We need to we need to release ourselves inside of that microservice and let it do what it's specialized to do. We need some other place to describe our business logic. And that's, that's where those bad decisions don't happen. If I give you the constraints, which this is a, this is a healthy, positive constraints of StoryScript being a place to write business logic to connect microservices, then now you have two different places development happens in a good way. You have business logic connecting dots and you have high-level languages to do the heavy lifting and, and, the, and the service-scoped projects and the actions, right? And the events, okay? And this, that separation will not inherently cause the mess when you put it all into jamming into one. In fact, this is the same problem that monoliths have. I'm sure a lot of your viewers have walked into a company or built a company on their own or built a product on their own, built a monolith, right? And at the end of that monolith, after what, maybe 20,000 commits to that monolith, they look at that and they're like, oh my gosh, like this thing is just riddled with complexity. It's insane. I, like, I, I don't even know how this thing still stands. And that, that's because, well, you have one interface to describe your business logic with the necessary complexities and all the domain scopes. There is no difference between that style of a monolith and a microservice architecture from a higher level view, right? They're both a messy soup of interconnected pieces and complexities, and you have no idea what's going on. So separating the business logic from the application code gives you the correct medium and abstraction to define the flow of data, and to not end yourself in this soup of complexity. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I think, you know, especially when I started out and when I solely developed in monoliths, I would put a lot of logic into controllers, into models, and it crossed responsibility between others. And a lot more recently, when I'm working within a monolith, I extract everything over into its own separate little service that still lives within the monolith, but it's containerized or it's isolated to where it's not making database calls, it's not doing anything that the application is, needs to be aware of. It's just doing its own thing and it does it really well. So right. that could then 
if the application grows and if I see this one little service really get hammered, that could be extracted out into a microservice. So just start branching out, you know, almost like you have your tree trunk as your monolith, and then you create these branches and leaves out from there to handle, you know, their own little specific task. I was just going to say, I mean, I've run into this on a few apps where, yeah, you build this giant monolith. And, you know, it's not so much for me, at least, that, oh, there's all this stuff to keep track of in this app, you know, and maybe the the microservices make it easier to keep track of. I think there's some of that. But really, it's, oh, now I have to go change this code. And it turns out that everybody else also uses this code, right? And so when I go change this code, then it changes the expected behavior for this other thing or, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't take the parameter that it expected or something like that because I didn't realize that that was important. And so by putting things into a microservice, you can customize things more easily. One other thing that I wanted to add, and this is the thing that really appeals to me with the story, story scripting, is that typically there's some story to be told that is the core of your app, right? So right. I'm, I'm building a podcasting app that, you know, helps people, you know, manage their production processes and things like that, right? And so each little step could be its own microservice, but there's this core to the app that's kind of mm-hmm. what ties all these things together. And that's usually where the monolith lives. And exactly. so what, what gets me excited is that, oh, now I can just build the microservices and then I can essentially just tell the story. Okay, mm-hmm. it does this and then it does that and then it does mm-hmm. this, you know, and maybe there are checks and balances in the middle but that those can also be microservices and managed as part of the story. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that's a beautiful way of looking at it, right? Where you know you 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 understand that the that business logic is that fundamental root of of your monolith, right? And that's that's why we use that monolith because we have a the source of truth. And and that's really why it's still the industry. Like I believe it's still around ninety percent of the industry in general is still working with monoliths. Is because that source of truth is heavily readable and intuitive, and it's right there. It's encoded, lives. It's true. And so that's something that when you're building uh, your app trials that you're talking about, right? It, it depends on your perspective, right? Like you may want to start with like the heavy lifting, or may or you may want to start with the business logic. But StoryScript allows you to do both angles, right? I can start writing a bunch of business logic and and essentially fake the microservices and fill in those blanks later, where I can define all the things I want to do. And the language itself is, is very unique. It's, it's actually the first fully asynchronous language too, where you can do ambiguous waits and waiting for certain events at times, right? right? That doesn't happen in other languages. You have to like put it in a RabbitMQ and set a different broker and worker and DQ serialize and like that. I mean, we all know this, right? It's much more beautiful to be able to look at software and be like, if this happens, do this, when this happens, try this, wait for this to happen, then do this, right? And all those this, that's are just microservices. And Charles, when you're going to describe your application, you're going to be describing it in business logic. And those things can typically be translated into code. And that's like, that's really the value of an engineer, right? Is like, we take business logic and we translate it into code. And that is a really steep learning curve, really steep. It takes years and years of practice to really hone that skill of translation, right? And I believe, and I think there's a lot of viewers that I hope agree with as well too, that the future, that bar is going to be lowered. And in a good way, we can be more productive and we can be focusing on what matters most, which is just that business logic. Yep. So are there things that people can be doing now to start heading down this road? And absolutely. I mean, the two, the two avenues or the two kind of the, the, split, the split highway that we're on, right, is that open microservice guide, which we're going to be donating to the CNCF landscape very soon here. 
the components in that are a full YAML spec to declare and define the microservice. And it, there's an app and a whole CI and all of these amazing things that help you test and debug and kind of like service your microservice, right? And that is all MIT licensed. We would love people's contributions on this. That's one big avenue that would help today. And StoryScript is a full Apache 2.0 license where we have a cloud offering and we also have an on-premise offering. And you, like, you can run it for free on your own. That's totally fine. We actually promote that. We're focused on the future, man. We look at like in the future, there's gonna be 10 to 100 times more engineers. So like right now, let's just get as many as we can using something that's gonna be the future, right? And so our platform has a lot of work to be done. And we would love the contribution of people. We're also hiring. So if anyone wants to join this amazing mission that we're on, we'd be more than happy to have you join. Cool. I think I might have uh, sidetracked something that Dave was talking about there. No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I mean, we covered actually quite a lot of ground, guys. I'm quite proud of uh, the answers and questions that were, that were done yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. I think the communication, like, I think that really illuminated the problems industry. And I hope that, that I was able to help with some of those answers, right? And I, I really do believe that the industry is going to see this massive shift towards a distributed system, right? Where we're like, we're fully utilizing microservices and serverless technologies. And, and I, I just, I can't sit here and, and it just, no shred of me believes that what we have right now, like Ruby on Rails, for example, or Django with Python is the end of development. We're going to just keep abstracting and keep going, right? So I'd love to leave the, the viewers, if I may, to say like, you know, if, if you see a different path, I'd love to talk to you about that. And if you see it, an alternative avenue for what we've provided, the way I've described this, I'd love to talk to you. Because like at the end of the day, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my community. And I really believe that, that someone, if it's not me, it should be someone else. And I would want to join them to transform application development, the way that the iPhone transformed the phones, the way the car transformed the horse and carriage. Cool. I love it. And I love the passion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Charles. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. All right, well, let, let's go ahead and do picks unless you have something else you want to add, Dave. Nope, no, picks are good. All right, do you want to start us off with picks then, Dave? Yeah, sure. So I'll just uh, jump in with kind of one pick that kind of spiders off, but... The new iOS 13 and macOS 10.15 Catalina, I have the betas running and I could not be happier with Sidecar. It's super awesome. It's a new feature where you can basically replace whatever application you had on your iPad with uh, Sidecar and essentially allows you to use your iPad as a secondary screen from your Mac or MacBook Pro or whatever 
and it does it wirelessly and seamlessly. So it's uh, super awesome. You don't have to dangle cables anymore from you know tethering your iPad to your Mac anymore, and it actually works. So I've been through a lot of previous ones like uh, Duet Display and some other ones, and they just worked for a while, but then just kind of crapped out on me. So I'm really happy to see Apple bringing this in-house and have a pretty solid feature. That being said, if you are running or if you decide to run a beta version of macOS or watchOS or whatever, be careful doing it on your production environment on your computers because I actually basically artificially bricked my Apple Watch the other day because I updated it to Watch OS 6, but I did not yet update my iPhone to the beta version of iOS 13, and I could no longer pair my watch with my phone. I had to wait until I updated the phone to iOS 13 in order to get back my watch's functionality. So just a uh, heat of warning there. Nice. I'm just trying to think here. So... um... Lots of stuff going on. I just barely launched the new devchat.tv website. So if you are kind of following along with some of that, that is now up. And we're also going to be producing a second episode of JavaScript Jabber. So if you're a listener to that show, um, you know, stay tuned here in a week or so. Um, we're going to have two episodes a week going out for that show. As far as things that I've been uh, dealing with and playing with, so launching the website... On so it's hosted on Netlify, and it's a statically generated site, kind of like Jekyll, except it's it's not Jekyll; it's a different uh, system. And anyway, one thing that I ran into is that my show notes folks are not developers, and so they are not doing like a markdown and then pushing to Git is just not kind of their thing. And Netlify provides a really nice CMS on the back end, and what it does is it just connects to your GitHub repo. And so when somebody creates a new post or, or episode on your system, it just commits it to GitHub. And so that, that's been really, really convenient. And so I, and I'm really digging that. So I'm going to pick Netlify CMS. And yeah, I, I think that's all I've got this week. Uh, Steve, do you have some picks for us? Um, I don't. Um, it's been cool to have one because I think that's really cool what you guys are sharing. <laughs> But yeah, I was trying to think during that time. Uh, I, to be honest, I'm just laser focused on what we're building with StoryScript. So, but I don't have much else to add. But thank you so much for the time to chat. Yeah, it's been fun. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Yeah, so you can go to storyscript.io. My personal Twitter handler is um, at I-O-P-E-A-K, I-O-P-E-A-K. But everything's from storyscript.io, all of our documentation and the hub and everything you can find there. And then the microservice.guide is the other, other uh, part of this product and platform. So I really appreciate your guys' time and I lo- really look forward to the feedback from your, uh, from your audience. Um, and I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to anybody. So please don't be shy to reach out. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks for coming, Steve. Yeah, thank you, Charles. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate your time. All right, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.